Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swaminathan. And I'm Jenny Beck-Esme. This week, I thought we could discuss a couple of papers that we reviewed in our conference this month. Not really a deep dive here, although we will drop some links to our foam friends who have done extensive reviews already. Sound okay, Jenny? Sounds great. All right. The first article is Idarucizumab for Dabigatran Reversal, a Full Cohort Analysis in New England Journal of Medicine, 2017. Jenny, how about a little background on this topic before we dive into the article itself? Dabigatran is an oral direct thrombin inhibitor, and it's touted as non-inferior to warfarin. It's routinely now being prescribed for the treatment of non-valvular atrial fibrillation, venous thromboembolism, or VTE, and post-surgical prophylaxis. Dabigatran blocks the last stages of the coagulation cascade, specifically the cleavage of fibrinogen into fibrin, activation of platelets, and stabilization of forming clots. Now, one of the many problems with dabigatran is the lack of a viable reversal strategy. Enter idarucizumab. This is a monoclonal antigen-binding fragment, or FAB. Back in 2015, this research group also released an interim analysis that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and we'll drop our review of that article in the show notes. Our bottom line on that review was that idarucizumab improves coagulation parameters in patients on dabigatran, but there was no patient-centered benefit shown in that study. This publication was the complete study, and it asked the following questions. Does 5 grams of intravenous idarucizumab reverse the anticoagulant effects of dabigatran in patients with uncontrolled bleeding or who are about to undergo an urgent procedure? The authors took all adults over 18 years of age who were suffering a life-threatening bleeding or required rapid reversal for a procedure. All patients got 5 grams of idarucizumab, there was no control arm, and the primary outcome was maximum percentage reversal of anticoagulant effect. Secondary outcomes were the extent of bleeding and hemodynamic stability in the life-threatening bleeding arm, as well as periprocedural hemostasis in the emergency procedure arm. Just about 500 patients were enrolled, with 300 in the life-threatening bleeding arm and 200 in the needs of procedure arm. At the four-hour mark, 100% of the drug was found to be reversed in both arms. As for the secondary outcomes, in the life-threatening bleeding arm, only 134 patients were assessed for extent of bleeding and hemodynamic stability, and the authors claim a two-and-a-half-hour timed hemostasis. In the needs of procedure arm, the authors state that 93% of the patients had normal hemostasis. The authors conclude that in emergency situations, idarucizumab rapidly, durably, and safely reversed the anticoagulant effect of dabigatran. But it's an understatement to say that we could not disagree more strongly with this statement. There are so many problems with the study design and the selective reporting of results that it boggles the mind that a once venerable journal like the New England Journal of Medicine would even publish this very clear advertisement for the pharmaceutical company. It all starts with the fact that the study was funded and guided by Boringer Ingelheim. Right up front, they state that the steering committee for the trial had representatives from the company. The study didn't look at patient-centered primary outcomes. There's not a single patient out there who says, thank God I had 100% reversal of my dabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagabagab
but the study was so methodologically flawed that we can't really take anything from those reported results. The study was unblinded with no control arm. That means that clinicians who were aware of the study drug being used and possibly heavily influenced by the maker of this expensive drug determined the degree to which hemostasis was accomplished after the drug was given. Additionally, in the life-threatening bleeding arm, two-thirds of patients were excluded from the secondary outcome. This is simply selective reporting, and it's evidenced by the fact that in the interim analysis, the time to cessation of bleeding was 11 and a half hours. And now magically, that time is whittled all the way down to two and a half hours. The only way this could possibly be accomplished if the authors decided to simply exclude patients with prolonged cessation of bleeding and solely report the data that was beneficial to their drug. Okay, before Swami blows an aneurysm and I completely lose the ability to speak... <laughs> Let's just state our conclusions. Now, these were written by Michael Shamoon, one of our senior residents, or I guess one of Swami's senior residents. And what he says here is that idarucizumab effectively normalizes laboratory values that are used as surrogate markers for the anticoagulant effect of dabigatran. And despite the biological plausibility of benefit, the clinical value and safety risks of the treatment cannot be conclusively determined from this study. Really perfectly phrased. And if you want to read more about the really ridiculousness of the claim of usefulness of this drug, head over to Justin Morgenstern's fantastic post on First 10 EM. Jenny, let's move on to paper number two. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, we can talk about a paper that's not going to make me pull all my hair out. <laughs> you make me laugh. No such luck. Our second paper is Time to Furosemide Treatment and Mortality in Patients Hospitalized with Acute Heart Failure. And this is from the journal from the American College of Cardiology 2017. So we went from dabigatran reversal to looking at time to furosemide. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, it's perfect. You know, I thought we were friends, and then you do this stuff. to me. It's all your favorite stuff, all in yeah, one podcast. all my favorite stuff, all in one place. Thank you. <laughs> okay, before you color the listeners with your opinion, let's get to the paper. Does time from ED arrival to furosemide administration have an impact on in-hospital mortality in patients presenting with acute heart failure exacerbation? No. Do you want to offer more on the topic? No. Are you sure? Yeah, as my three-year-old says when it's time for bedtime, no. <laughs> well, uh, on my clock, we've got another five minutes or so of podcast to fill, so I'm just going to get into it here. This was a prospective multi-center observational cohort study looking at patients who are ultimately diagnosed with acute heart failure and whether the early administration of furosemide made a difference. Early was defined here as given within 60 minutes, and the primary outcome was all-cause mortality. This study was about 1,300 patients, and about 500 were getting early furosemide and 800 getting it later, and they found decreased mortality associated with early administration. Mortality was 6% in the late furosemide group and 2.3% in the early furosemide group. Well, this seems pretty cut and dry. That's a 3.7% difference. Early furosemide must be better, right? The authors thought it was pretty cut and dry. They concluded, in this prospective multicenter observational cohort study of patients presenting to the ED for acute heart failure, Early treatment with intravenous loop diuretics was associated with lower in-hospital mortality. Well, at least they said association. They got that part right. Because this type of study, it's observational, without randomization or blinding, cannot show causality. But the authors leave much of the nuance of the data out of their discussion. 
Salim Rezai over at Rebel EM and Ryan Radecki on EM Let of Note have done an excellent job pointing out many issues with this study. One of the major points they both bring up is that early furosemide group had more overt signs of volume overload, like JVD, orthopnea, rails, and pulmonary edema. Basically, this group got a lot of loop diuretics earlier because they obviously had volume overload and their pathology was quickly recognized. The patients who didn't get furosemide earlier had more cryptic presentations, but possibly, more importantly, weren't total body volume overloaded. We've discussed this on the blog in the past. The majority of patients who present with acute pulmonary edema, the ones that are tachypnic, tachycardic, hypertensive, and look terrible on presentation, are only total body volume overloaded around 50% of the time. This sick subset of patients doesn't need diuresis, but rather redistribution of now, volume. Now, a full discussion of this goes beyond what we're going to cover here, but check out the links in the show notes on this. Steve McDonald, a fourth-year resident, wrote this up for us in the CORE-EM summary, and he summarized it this way. This study demonstrates the intuitive. Patients with a clear diagnosis of acute heart failure on arrival to the ED will receive appropriate treatment sooner and do better in the hospital. When the diagnosis is more subtle, delays will occur. The standard care still stands. Patients should receive IV furosemide as soon as the diagnosis of acute heart failure with volume overload is made. It's critical to note that not all patients with acute heart failure will require furosemide, as many, maybe about 50%, are not volume overloaded. I love it, Jenny. Well, I was going to discuss a couple more papers this week, but the two that we looked at, they they don't make me feel good. I don't feel good at all about either of these papers, so we're going to save the rest for next time. Hopefully, we'll look at some studies that actually are well done and give us important information. While neither of these papers should change our clinical practice, I think it's important to review them because they're in big name journals. They're going to get a lot of press. So, Jenny, how about a take home? Well, so I could just review our summaries of these two articles, give you those take home points from those articles. But I'd like to take the take home points here to just remind everybody to always read the papers and critically appraise them for yourselves instead of just simply trusting that conclusion at the end of the abstract and trusting that the information there is good because they're published in these high quality journals. We can't outsource our critical thinking because there's simply too much conflict of interest in these journal articles. We have to always read them ourselves. It's tempting to just look at that abstract, but you got to get into the nitty gritty. And then also, you don't have to just trust us. You can read these articles for yourself and see what you think. Oh, I love that last point. Don't trust us just because we're on a podcast talking about it. Don't believe what we say. Read them on your own and find out what you think about them. Put them in the context of your clinical practice and see how this applies to your patients. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.